Hello and welcome to the Dorkamotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of Operation Snowbound, an incredible 1949 mission that brought together the Army, the Air Force, the National Guard, the Navy, and the public sector to save the great Western Plains of the United States. It's a story of teamwork, a story of gumption, and a story that will put a smile on your face because of its amazing success. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So the story of Operation Snowbound is one of my favorite kind of mid-century America stories. We're talking about a story that takes place five years after the close of World War II. The country is still, in many ways, putting itself back together again industrially and sociologically after that uh, after that incredible crisis that the whole world went through. And it's a very upbeat time in America. This is just before the 1950s. We got things like the baby boom starting to kick off. We have some very transformational events in the country. And we also, of course, have a great deal of patriotic pride in the war that was won by the good guys and not the bad guys of the Axis. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story on this particular episode is that we are in a time here in 2020 of kind of great division. We're in a time of questioning a lot of the things that go on on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis in the United States. And maybe I'm telling you this story today for my own good, because I want to kind of reinforce some of the great principles that I feel like our country uh, built on and still embodies in so many ways. So Operation Snowbound is a military operation in the United States, but not in any of the ways you may be thinking or cringing about. This is a story of hard work. It is a story of dedication, of great planning, and ultimately of success and of effort that saved the lives of untold hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions, and save the lives absolutely of millions of livestock and animals. And in some ways, we can talk about this whole operation potentially uh, preventing a giant disruption in the American food chain in 1949. It's just an amazing thing. It is a man versus nature story. It is a machine versus nature story. It is the story of the largest bulldozer deployment in the history of the world, And like I said, ultimately, it is a story of success. And our story begins in November of 1948. And in November of 1948, this would begin a winter the likes of which the country had not seen before or since. The old people that lived in the Western Plains, those that were around in the late 1800s, would talk about the winter of 1888 and how it was so bad and how it was just uh, the worst thing they had ever seen. And, you know, the history books, the weather history of that area does tell a very grim tale about that 1888 winter. But when we get to the 1948 and 1949 winter, there is no comparison to anything before or since. And before I start to get into the specifics of the story, I really believe that this tale resonates with people all over the country, maybe all over the world, because those of us, like me, that live in an environment that gets snow, have experienced a winter where the snow is up to the roof of your house or it's up to the roof of your shed. Those of you that don't live in a climate that gets snow will be kind of astonished by some of the things you hear in this story in terms of the depths of the snow and the things that happen. 
So in this human element of the story, I think we all have a different perspective on it. If you know snow, you'll be blown away by what happened. If you have no conception of snow, this will sound like something straight out of the comic books, but I promise you, it is absolutely true. November of 1948, a massive blizzard hits Nebraska, Wyoming, and Colorado. Several feet of snow fall over this period of time. It's, it lasts several days. Uh, it is a storm that cities, towns, and states respond to to clean up. They're equipped to do this. We have a mechanized world by this time in history. We have areas that are used to getting snowfall of this magnitude. You know, it may take them a little while, but they'll be able to work through this. And so work commences by highway crews, by towns, by cities, by contractors, and they are working to clear things out. Then on January 2nd, 1949, just a couple of months later, barely after they've gotten in the first blizzard clear, because we're talking about very rural country, frigid weather has prevented a lot of the snow from even melting at this point, and a lot of that snow has formed into ice. January 2nd, 1949, blizzard number two strikes this same area, and it expands its footprint, if you will. So the same area that got crushed in November of 1948 now gets smashed again January 2nd, 1949. The National Guard gets activated at this point. They bring in tractors, they bring in plows, and now there's a critical issue after this second storm on January 2nd, 1949, and that is livestock. And these massive ranches are having snowfalls and snow drifts that are preventing livestock from being able to eat. These are not farms or ranches that have uh, size enough to put them inside anywhere. So this becomes very scary for the ranchers and starts to get a little hairy in terms of the amount of head of cattle that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes is a lot. And at this time and at any time in history, when we're talking about these size of livestock potential losses, it gets very concerning for the food supply and for the economy. So the National Guard steps in at this point and begins something called Operation Hayride. And what they do is they start flying planes and airdropping hay. They are literally airdropping baled hay out of the sides of planes onto the grounds of these ranches to try to get the livestock some food. And this is a good start. This is certainly something that can help. And, you know, they mobilize a bunch of airplanes and they're just dropping this stuff as fast and as far as they can. Obviously, coming off of World War II just a few years earlier, there's a lot of experience in these air-type missions, airdrop-style missions, and so it has a modicum of success. The highways, the National Guard uh, responders are doing their best to clear roads, but the reality is they're getting pretty close to overwhelmed, having to have just dealt with the storm in November, and this second storm has really put a damper on things. Then January 25th comes, where three weeks later, Another absolutely massive blizzard parks itself over the same area, Nebraska, Wyoming, and now the Dakotas. At this point, everything becomes paralyzed. There is now so much snow on the ground, nobody can do anything. There is not nearly enough equipment on the ground. There is not nearly enough people, supplies, or manpower. And the potential threat of these three blizzards on top of each other is staggering in potential loss of life and in potential disaster. So the federal government decides to survey the situation before they fully jump into it. They send Major General John Lucas of the 5th Army, and he surveys this by airplane. And when we think about 2020, we could have satellite imagery of this entire area in minutes. You could have the entire size of this area that's been socked in by these three massive storms completed in satellites, probably less than minutes. Someone could probably pick up the phone, and within seconds, you could have imagery zoomed in to see what this looked like. 
But in 1949, there was no such technology. Sputnik was still several years away from going up, and that was basically just a glorified FM radio transmitter. So John Lucas flies around for a day or two and, uh, and realizes very quickly this is a disaster of epic proportions, and it is far larger than anybody even conceived. They thought it might be a couple thousand square miles, maybe 10,000 square miles, maybe 15,000 square miles. Well, the size of the affected area by every measure in the post-study of this was 193,000 square miles, which, for those of you playing at home, is basically the size of France. So this massive area, roughly the size of France, is paralyzed with a large portion of the country's livestock in it. Uh, Many millions of people live in this area, very well spread out, of course, but there's over a million people affected, and the livestock numbers are absolutely staggering. Lucas immediately reports back to President Truman, and President Truman wastes absolutely zero time in declaring the entire region of the country a disaster area. And when a region is declared a disaster area by a president, it allows a lot of things to happen very quickly. Specifically, it allows them to free up uh, military resources to help respond to this particular disaster. Before I go ahead with that next phase, this response, which is ultimately going to make up the best part of the story of Operation Snowbound, I'm going to introduce some period audio into this piece. I mentioned bulldozers, and I mentioned tractors. Well, a company called Alice Chalmers, for those of you that are into tractors or bulldozers, I happen to be, which is one of the reasons why I love telling the story. A company named Alice Chalmers was one of the primary suppliers, one of the primary equipment manufacturers whose stuff was used on Operation Snowbound. So, as this operation was happening, Alice Chalmers actually sent a film crew out to go around and kind of film what was happening. And the footage is stunning. But even more stunning is this narrator. And we're going to drop this narrator into our story here a few times. But... Let's hear from the narrator as he sets the scene for us in Operation Snowbound. Remember, this is a promotional film, so some of his quote-unquote facts don't exactly line up with the dates I'm giving you, but I can promise you the ones I have come from the government and Army reports on the response to this. The ones he has are great to make a compelling story. Our country is a big country, big in many ways, big in miles, in resources, in its population, and in its heart. When disaster strikes, these sizes really show up. An example was the reaction of our whole nation to the suffering and hardship caused by the unprecedented snowfall which smothered the western plains during the winter of 48 and 49. It was no sudden catastrophe. It started quite normally. During the night of November 18, a blizzard roared over the plains. This storm passed, however, and people carried on in their usual winter fashion. But a few days later, there was another blizzard, and another, then another. Huge drifts blocked roads and railways, piled up around towns, villages, and ranches, and left many completely marooned. 300,000 persons were bound in hardship and isolation. Over $3 million worth of cattle were in immediate jeopardy. Each day took its toll in human lives and dead cattle. Word flashed out to the nation. Western, plains, snowbound. And it quite literally did flash out to the nation. Western, plains, snowbound. 
So now we know we have a disaster area. We know that it has been surveyed by John Lucas, the Major General of the Fifth Army of the United States. We know that Henry or Harry Truman rather has declared this entire region a disaster area. So Truman makes a critical decision here and maybe one of the best decisions he could have made in terms of who is going to lead this operation. He picks a guy named Major General Lewis Pick, and Pick is going eventually to retire as a three-star uh, general from the United States Army. And Lewis Pick dies when he's in his mid-60s. He passes away in 1956, not too long after this whole story is told. But why is Pick the right guy for the job? He's been in the Army Corps of Engineers since 1917. He got a commission after graduating college in 1917, and he served in World War I. In 1927, Pick was in charge of the uh, response to the Great Mississippi Flood, and he ran the relief efforts, and he also developed the flood control plan for the Missouri River Basin in the United States. So this is a very smart guy. He's controversial in some circles, and rightfully so, because when Pick made the uh, flood control plan for this Missouri River Basin, he effectively flooded a lot of Native American lands and displaced a lot of people. Rather than flood other potential places, he directed the flooding to make reservoirs and to make holding areas, and those uh, drastically and very negatively impacted Native Americans. So in a lot of respects, Pick is not liked rightfully in those communities. In 1943, he is sent to World War II, and he serves in the China-Burma Theater, and his biggest accomplishment in World War II was he is the chief road engineer to build what's called the Lido Road. And for those of you that want a quick World War II history lesson, um, when China was basically cut off uh, from a lot of the world and they were cut off from getting supplies and they were cut off from getting uh, anything brought in that they needed militarily or otherwise, and the only way that they were going to be able to get China resupplied and, and get the necessary equipment and war material to people in that area was to build a road. And they built a road connecting India and China, which is called the Lido Road. As they were building it, it was actually called Picks Pike. But this was an incredible project. It's a 1,072-mile road. And you can, you can probably imagine building a road in a rural, jungle-like wilderness between India and China is no small task, especially when it's 1,072 miles long. It was a two-and-a-half-year project that used 15,000 American soldiers, 60% of which African-American, to build this road. It used 35,000 locals as well, and it had a modern cost of over $2 billion. The most staggering part of the Lido Road is the fact that 1,100 people died while building it. And we can cite any number of ways people passed away on this project. They weren't all just construction deaths. There was obviously some uh, some war-resistant stuff going on as well when this is happening. But it was an incredible project, and it was Pick that was in charge of executing that project. He comes home in 1945, and he is uh, named the Missouri River Engineer of the Army Corps of Engineers. So he is in charge of the Missouri River area. And after this Operation Snowbound is complete. He is promoted to Chief of Engineers in the Army Corps of Engineers. But suffice it to say, in 1949, he is the Missouri River Engineer District Location Region Leader. And with his previous response in the roading, road building kind of side of things, and also in the disaster relief area from the 1927 Mississippi flood, he was the right guy for Truman to pick for the job. And he will prove himself immediately the correct man to lead this operation. So 
as the disaster declaration is being made by Truman, things are already happening. The orders are beginning to get handed out that day. This was a Saturday. Orders are handed out. By Sunday night, field offices have been open in various locations inside of this huge 193,000 square mile area. On Monday, machines are rolling already. Whatever machines were at hand were already operational. Now, there were previous works going on in the earlier storms by the state and local officials. They were already working. It all now fell under PICS control and the control of the military to actually get this thing, get this thing done. By Tuesday, they had opened 175 miles of road. They had brought relief to 6,853 people in various ways that we'll talk about in a few minutes, and they had fed 46,000 cattle. Saturday, the operation starts, and by Tuesday, they've opened close to 200 miles of road, helped by providing food or warmth or blankets or shelter to 6,853 people, and they have fed 46,000 head of cattle. Now let's talk about the size of the operation. I mentioned 46,000 head of cattle fed in just a handful of days. What are we actually looking at here? What is the size of Operation Snowbound? I mentioned 193,193 square miles. As a point of reference, as everyone always says, it's about the size of France. 1.2 million people live in this area. And of course they are spread out. These are ranchers. This is rural country, especially in 1949. Within this area, there are 1.5 million sheep, and there are 4.5 million head of cattle. 4.5 million head of cattle. Combine the sheep, combine the cattle, you have about six times the human population of this area. There are 115,000 miles of road that need clearing. And, of course, we need to be making paths to haystacks to feed cows. We need to be getting the livestock fed. The mobilization of Operation Snowbound will eventually include 6,000 people, military and civilian alike, using 1,600 pieces of equipment, about 1,300 people on bulldozers. Other equipment is going to include trucks and other things we'll get into. The neatest part of this story, to me, is the fact that it is one of the most cooperative efforts between the military, the general population, that I have ever heard about in American history. So who's involved in this whole thing? Everybody. And let's talk about that next. The level of cooperation and teamwork on this project is one of the reasons why I really love it so much. And it was such a big deal that General Pick opened his report with the following statement, and I quote, This operation merits recording as a classic example of the harmonious teamwork between the Army and Air Force. Doesn't seem like a big deal. It's the Army and the Air Force. Shouldn't they be working together? You have to remember, there is always a level of, um, a level of, I don't want to say challenge, a level of competition, if you will, between the branches of the armed forces. There always has been, there always will be. It's why there's an Army-Navy football game at base, and then it goes up from there. During World War II, Especially in the early stages, there was great tension between the Air Force and the Army. It has not always been a very lovey-dovey relationship. So, 
the fact that these two branches, the two major branches that were dealing with this problem, were able to work hand-in-hand in lockstep and do it perfectly was a big deal, and it was something that Pick understood would send the right message to the American people and would certainly send the right message to the armed forces across the lines to say, hey, we can do great things together. Let's try to bury the hatchet when we need to. It does also help that this was a humanitarian response and was not a wartime response. It also helps that you know, you're not trying to make up... Uh, Uh, conflicting battle plans this was a situation where pick was in charge pick was able to call the shots and everybody worked in unison hand in hand believe it or not the navy was involved in this project which i mentioned as well so you have army navy air force national guard and private sector how was the navy involved well the navy sent a lot of uh, radio operators and they sent personnel for coordination and communication as well so Obviously, with all the different field offices that were open, these remote locations, there needed to be a line of communication that was kept open to to the places that needed it most, and that communication was very, very important in terms of keeping the whole operation on task, making sure resources were being allocated where they need to go the most, and that was what the Navy personnel that came in did. They were, they were minor players, but I don't want to leave them out because they were a part of this as well, and it should be noted that the Hastings, Nebraska Naval Ammunition Depot had 35 or 40 people that began working 24-hour shifts uh, seven days a week working localized road clearing in that area as well. So it was all hands on deck. Whether you were actually assigned to this project as a radio operator or whether you were stationed in the middle of the madness and had to step up to the plate to help your communi- your local community or your you know your buddies kind of survive this thing. The Air Force role was essential in Operation Snowbound. They provided 76 aircraft that ranged from helicopters to the famed flying boxcar cargo planes, C-82 cargo planes as well, and this became the basis for Operation Haylift. And Operation Haylift, of course, was incorporated into this entire Operation Snowbound, and they fed a lot of cattle they saved a lot of lives and they fed a lot of people because they would also airdrop you know boxes or i should say sacks of supplies out of the airplanes if people were in such dire stress that they knew there was a family that was starving they knew there was a family that needed basic essentials i mean they were making like individualized drops to people's houses and these airplanes were flying about 24 hours a day whether they were heaving hay out the sides or heaving supplies out the sides as they flew over people's homes they were absolutely essential in making sure this worked and they're also essential in keeping track of what roads are being cleared where they're being cleared and basically providing for back of a letter lack of a better term they were providing reconnaissance for this mission you had to have an eye in the sky over these areas because they were so big you had to have some way to get an accurate telling of okay we we cleared 70 miles in this direction today we need to go 20 miles in this direction this particular farm they are in big trouble they need help This also goes back to the private sector that I mentioned was involved. Civil Air Patrol and private small planes were being flown, again, like house to house. People that had small planes took it upon themselves to fly home to home to figure out what people needed, if they were surviving, if they needed to be flown away and rescued, brought to a medical center, brought to somewhere warm. The Civil Air Patrol and private small planes were an essential part of this as well. We think of the Dunkirk evacuation in World War II and how it was, you know, private uh, boat operators in England that were able to basically save an army that was trapped on the beach and get them floated home. Well, to some degree, this was a Dunkirk-style situation in Operation Snowbound where these local people were able to take their small planes 
land them at people's homes and get them out or get them what they needed. At least get them information or get them help. Public radio stations were a huge thing here. The, the amazing thing about this particular situation is that telephone lines, telegraph lines, and radio stations all maintained operation through all, throughout all these big blizzards. We think about today, and you get a big blizzard, for those of you that have lived through one, you figure, okay, well, probably going to lose the electricity, and then probably everything else is going to go down behind it, probably going to lose the telephone. Now, in 2020, everybody's got wireless phones, so it ain't that big a deal, but in 1949, you didn't whip out your cell phone. If telephone lines went down, there was nothing doing. Telegraph lines went down, you were really up the creek. Well, local radio stations would get phone calls from families, and they would make individualized appeals for individual people. And the military would monitor the local radio stations. So if a station in Nebraska came on and said, the Johnson Ranch is in danger of losing 10,000 head of cattle, they cannot free up their hay, they cannot get out of their home, they need help, the Army, or rather the Army or the Air Force, if they could get it to them on the ground, they would, but if they couldn't, they would send planes, you'd have an airdrop at your house, you would have hay left, you would have supplies dropped, you would have somebody there. If the Army could get to you, they would come in with the bulldozers, they would come in with the tractors, and they would dig out or dig a path to the haystack so the animals could get fed. It was still an, an abject disaster. We're going to talk about the losses of this storm, what it took from people. But when we think about the, just a, an amazing human response, like every everybody was dialed in on one thing, and that was saving people and saving livestock. I mentioned the National Guard. The National Guard was involved in this thing from the beginning. Remember, the National Guard was involved long before the third blizzard hit. So the National Guard has already been doing yeoman's work in this thing. They are heroes in their own right because they really were the longest on the job. And the National Guard was concerned with the tractors, the clearing of roads, and uh, the clearing of uh, livestock paths to hay. General Pick set up a very clear priority order to Operation Snowbound when it first began. The priority order was, number one, relieve human suffering, number two, open ways to feed livestock, and as those two things were going, there was a concurrent priority, which was clearing roads at the same time. And the clearing roads part is where we get into the tractors, which is outside of the human element, kind of my favorite part of the story, because I love old heavy machinery, and I kind of love the idea that these clunky, clanking, rumbling old machines were what saved so many people and so many things. You know, the, the bulldozer is just kind of this thing that most people don't pay a lot of attention to. And we look at what their uses have been throughout time, and bulldozers have done some amazing things, but they have never been a more vital resource to save a lot of people and to save a lot of uh, organisms as they were here. So how bad was the snow? Maybe that's the next question. Let's answer that. The next place we're going to talk about is how bad the snow was. Most places had three to four feet of depth on flat areas. Other places, like outside of Sundance, Wyoming, had 104 inches on flat surfaces. This is not drifting. They had 104 inches of just straight up snow that fell straight down. Does not count the drifts. The drifts, 20 to 30 and sometimes 40 feet deep. And this is where big problems start to come in. How do you clear a 30 to 40 foot snow drift? There is no such thing as a tractor that had that big a blade. No such thing as something that had the type of horsepower to do that. 
We'll talk about some of the intrinsic challenges because I haven't even mentioned the railroads yet. We'll get to that. So you got 30 to 48 inches in most places, 104 inches in other places, drifts of 20 to 30 feet. And oh, by the way, temperatures of negative 32 at their worst. Most times during this operation, temperatures were hovering between negative 10 and 10 degrees. Which sets up the next part of the story as to how in the heck they actually began to attack the snow in Operation Snowbound. Bitter cold, 15 and 20 degrees below zero, joined forces with the killer blizzards against mere man and his machines. Motor graders battled stubborn ice-coated drifts day and night. Vicious biting winds punished the equipment operators and rescue teams. In this nip-and-tuck battle, food was delivered to isolated ranches, hay was dropped to starving, half-frozen cattle, and some main roads were opened. New snow and winds roared in from the Rockies, threatening to stop Operation Snowbound. The worst winter in history was in full swing. It was a severe test for men and machines. Blizzard-wise operators passed the word on how to tackle the deep snow, push it off in layers, level the dips, until you've worked your way down to solid footing. I like our intrepid narrator there, kind of getting us up to speed. So, yeah, so how do you attack the snow when there are places where it's 30 feet deep? Like, what do you do? And I think the way we need to describe this is we need to talk about the work crews first. So Pick and his guys decided on a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week work schedule. So operators would work two 10-hour shifts, and then there would be a 4-hour break for maintenance. And from everything I've read and heard... The four-hour break was often not taken because the machinery was performing. If the machinery was performing correctly, there was no need to stop. And frankly, you did not want to stop. These were basically diesel-powered bulldozers. And the last thing you wanted was to shut one of them off and have it go to negative 10 degrees and try to get it started out in the field again. So 24-7, these men are out there working. And I say men because I have to say men. This was not a time in history when there was a bunch of women out there running bulldozers as well. These were basically all men out there running these machines and they're running them in groups of three to four bulldozers at a time a lot of times this group would have three or four bulldozers a road grader and then a six by six deuce and a half truck the six-wheel drive trucks would basically be the cleanup operation if you can think of this they'd run a couple of bulldozers next to each other two at a time per se and they're rolling this big wall of snow back and they're not cutting all the way to the bottom they're kind of shaving off the top as you just heard the narrator talk about and they would do this repeatedly until they worked their way down and then the second line of bulldozers would again take another big bite out of it and then the road grader would come behind them and kind of shovel a bunch of stuff off to the side and lastly a six by six truck that had a v-style plow on it that had some wings that were widened it way out would would furrow the snow out wide enough to basically get a car or a truck down through that area and a few times they had singular bulldozer operators out there by themselves, um, which to me is almost a, a terrifying kind of prospect. If you're a guy out there by yourself in this white frozen hell and an open machine, remember, the only thing that would have had a cab on it in this entire operation would have been a 6x6 truck, which would have had a canvas roof, and the road grader would have had an enclosed cab. Everything else was wide open. So these operators were out there 10 hours a day in sub-zero temperatures with nothing to protect them. 
they would have these little sky side skirts, these these canvas skirts they would put on the sides of the engine that would help to kind of transfer, at least try to transfer some of the heat back toward the driver. But if you're out there and it's 10 degrees below zero and the wind's whipping, a little bit of latent heat coming off the engine is not exactly uh, giving you a whole lot of help. So there's a level of toughness here that's just unbelievable. The way that they would run these teams, if there was a ranking officer, you know, if there was somebody that had some military rank, they would become the foreman of this kind of group of uh, equipment operators or group of equipment. If there was no military person attached, because remember, you have contractors from the private sector as well, they would kind of take the most experienced guy and make that person the foreman of the job. Other vehicles that were used in this work would include something called a weasel. If you've ever seen an army weasel from the World War II era, it is basically a Jeep with tracks. It's a quarter-ton truck, a, a very light vehicle, if you will, but instead of having tires, it has tracks on it. And the weasels were indispensable in these operations because the weasels would actually go ahead almost as scout vehicles, and they would find houses, and they would find the haystacks, and then they would come back to the equipment operators and say, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to come up here and make a right, and then we're going to go into the pasture this way and open up the route that we can get the cows in there to get some food. So the weasels were like little scout vehicles, and they would glide right across the top of the snow. The bulldozers would occasionally glide across the top of the snow as well because it had been so frozen by these temperatures. Multiple storms when they come through would stack up on each other, compress the snow, and then the ice from the sub-zero temperatures would turn it into almost something as hard as concrete. There were also some special mobile units that were put together, and these mobile units were all wheeled vehicles. So you'd have a 6x6 truck, you would have some low-boy trailers that they would use to transport bulldozers on to get them quickly from place to place, you'd have uh, graders involved here, and you would also have the typical army jeep as well. The army jeeps were used uh, to kind of ferry things back and forth across the roads you had already cleared. An army jeep, by the studies that the army did during this operation, was good to about a foot of snow. And after a foot of snow, they became pretty much ineffectual, likely because they were so light and a non-directional style military tire isn't the best in the snow. So the jeep was basically your quick-moving transport, but the wheeled units could move a lot faster than bulldozers. So if there were areas that were lighter hit than others, other places, and they could kind of zip over with that stuff and do, um, do a cleanup job, then they could free up the bulldozers to work on the heavier things. And there were several of those units spread about this massive area as well. So this is all going on uh, through late January, and we're into February now. And just when things are seemingly as the toughest as they could be, another blizzard hits. February 5th to the 15th, a 10-day blizzard that the guys on these machines just have to straight up work through. And some of the roads they cleared were once again completely impassable. They had to turn around and go backwards and clean things that they already had. They just didn't stop fighting, and they just didn't stop moving. The equipment came from all over the country. It came from the manufacturers themselves, like Alice Chalmers. We'll hear more about them in a few minutes as they kind of pat themselves on the back for getting stuff to the front line of this fight. It came from Caterpillar. It came from Cleetrack. It came from International. And it came from the private sector as well as the military. Basically, anybody that had a bulldozer anywhere was expected to get in on this effort and get it to the front line. The bulldozers that were used, if you're familiar with uh, some of these tractors, smaller tractors like a Caterpillar D4 or an Alice Chalmers, Chalmers HD7, these were little tractors. These were not heavy machines, and they were used in areas that you needed more maneuverability or areas that had weak bridges. The big, heavy D7 and D8 caterpillars would crush and break through bridges. 
Sometimes guys would try to drive these things across frozen rivers, and, and on more than one occasion, a bulldozer broke through the ice and sunk. So there was some concern um, in some of these areas that they knew they had old-fashioned maybe timber bridges or wood bridges that could not support the weight of a bulldozer. They would send in the smaller machines to do the work. And they were not as effective because they were lighter and didn't make as much horsepower, but they were still part of the operation. A D8 Caterpillar, which is uh, kind of the industry standard big boy bulldozer at that era, was a great unit, and they were capable of moving six feet plus of snow like there was nothing in the way. You also had the big uh, Alice Chalmers tractors we were talking about, and uh, I mentioned the company called Cletrack, or the Cleveland Tractor Company that made crawler tractors as well. Those were a bit on the smaller side. The bulldozers were not just determined to move snow. They actually had another secondary purpose and that was to haul things specifically they had to haul hay check this out paths to haystacks alone made up a gigantic operation sitting in lonely isolation the half buried stacks were inaccessible cattle couldn't get at them fifth army contractors and bulldozers opened trails to the feed and saved thousands of cattle in many cases whole herds were kept alive by these hard-hitting machines tough steady power ripped life lanes in the vast white blanket which smothered the tremendous acreage of beef-producing ranches. Mountainous drifts crumpled. Slowly, the men and machines rolled back the snow. Sick, starving cattle needed hay, lots of hay quickly. Range herds, still in good form, had to get to stacks for immediate feeding. Working around the clock was the only way to do the job. Cold, hungry, tired, and alone. Operators kept their rugged tractors working, bucking, smashing, and pushing at the heavy ice-layered snow. It was a job for men, and men did it. The deep drifts were impassable to horses, autos, or trucks. The only vehicle capable of motion on this 28,000-acre ranch was the tractor. This was typical throughout the three-state disaster area. Tractors manned by determined iron men, kept the loss of human life and cattle at the lowest possible level. So more hay could be transported over greater distances to starving cattle, farm machinery manufacturers diverted a sizable portion of their baler output to the disaster area. In many cases, baling machines were hauled right to the stacks. Willing crews of ranchers and hands fed hay into these machines, which rolled up bales at the rate of four a minute. Old men, young men, ranch hands and ranchers baled hay day after day in all kinds of weather. Biting cold, snow, and wind made little difference. Wherever there was a baler, there were men to feed it. Hay for direct feeding was baled at tremendous rates. A shovel-equipped tractor owned by this ranch kept many thousand head of cattle alive. This versatile machine fed marooned herds and opened access trails. Snow was removed from around stacks. Nine-ton stacks were pushed onto low boys and hauled across miles of Arctic desolation to stricken herds. This tractor became a friend of the cattle. They came to recognize the powerful purr of its smooth-running two-cycle diesel engine and its bright orange color. Frequently, cattle would attempt to follow it, knowing that it was going for feed. Young calves in the ranch pens were kept alive with feed brought in by the tractor. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, 
Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So now you're kind of getting the picture of just how hands-on this operation was by every single person involved, whether they were dragging haystacks or whether they were cutting paths, whether we had the civilian air patrol and people flying to people's homes trying to save them and get them the supplies. There was one particular machine that really stood out amongst all and gave a great impression to the Army during this nightmare, which was the Laterno Tornadozer, which is the first of what we would know as a wheel bulldozer. Rather than on tracks, it's on wheels, a very heavy machine, and it was able to clear up to seven miles of road a day. It was the unsung rock star of this operation. And they didn't have many of them, but the ones they had were incredibly useful to the point of the Army using these wheel bulldozers extensively for years and even up until today they have variants of these machines in use. So the Tornadozer was a revelation. It was maneuverable. It was very fast in terms of what was able to cover an open ground. And to be able to open 70 miles of road a day individually was something that a bulldozer or a team of bulldozers pretty much was could not do. It just they couldn't move fast enough to do that. So pretty amazing stuff there as far as the tornadozer goes, and it really became um, became a very very valuable machine and drove a whole revolution, a new segment, if you will, of heavy equipment because of its performance in Operation Snowbound. Drifts. I mentioned the 30 and 40 foot deep snow drifts. How did they deal with those? In a lot of cases, with dynamite, they would actually pack dynamite into the snow and blow the drifts up and then kind of clear out the gash that they made with the dynamite. You just can't get a machine on top of it, and if you drive a machine into it and it collapses, then you're going to bury people and your equipment in snow and probably kill them. So dynamite was used to blow up the snow drifts in many cases, and then the machines would come in after and clean up the mess that the dynamite made. I mentioned the railroads. What did you do with railroad lines? This was something that the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the National Guard simply couldn't help with because the only way you can really clear a railway line is with a snow a snowplow mounted on the front of your train or a rotary snowplow mounted on the front of the train. And a rotary snowplow is exactly as it sounds. Picture your driveway snowblower or a driveway snowblower that is about 15 to 18 feet tall, maybe 20 feet tall in some cases, with a massive blade being turned by the power of the locomotive, and it is throwing snow 100 feet in the air. These were fantastic machines, but they worked very slowly because they would simply just kind of chew at the snowbanks and the, the train would creep ahead. It was also, it required a lot of resources as well because you were working the locomotive very hard, using a lot of water, using a lot of uh, wood or coal to fire it, and it was slow going, but there was nothing else that could really be done. The other thing was with the railroads, the, the snow drifts were so, so deep, if you can imagine this, a full-size locomotive with a rotary snowplow would occasionally tunnel into a snowbank to a snow drift rather than actually clear it from the tracks and there was a danger of a collapse so they would go back to the dynamite. Clearing the railroad tracks was an incredibly difficult operation. Some of the railroads what they chose to do is they would use a crane mounted on the rail car and they would kind of use the crane to scoop out the tops of the snow banks or the snow drifts and then allow the rotary plow in. Some of them used a drag line style uh, digging machine. If you're familiar with the drag line, you kind of cast the bucket out and drag it back and it kind of scrapes off the top layer. But it was incredibly slow going and the railroads were impeded by this for months. 
I mean, it was a months-long operation. They were well into the spring and even close to the summer before they had any real full operation of their rail lines back in this area. The operation was about a month long. I'm talking about Operation Snowbound on the roads. About a month end-to-end. And we talked about the feeding of the cattle. Well, other things were fed too. We're talking about elk, antelope, even wild birds. Game birds were fed um, by airdrop and by food drop because they did not want to see the wildlife population of this area decimated. Not just the livestock, but the actual wildlife. To give you a sense of what the loss figure was in terms of cattle, in terms of livestock, in Wyoming, in July of 1949, the Department of Agriculture did a survey of a bunch of ranchers and farmers to figure out kind of what they could what they could gather in terms of a loss of life on this thing. And in Wyoming alone, they counted roughly 20,000 dead cattle and about 100,000 sheep. Now, this was an area that had 1.5 million sheep in it. So you don't want to lose 100,000 sheep ever. But if you have 1.5 million and you survive what is arguably the worst natural disaster of its type in your lifetime and maybe in the lifetime of several of us, and you lose 100,000 of them, as opposed to losing what probably would have been over a million, you have to count that as a victory. And the 20,000 dead cattle, the same numbers can be used here. The the actual cattle population was far bigger than 20,000. So while 20,000 is a staggeringly large number, it is nowhere near as bad as it could have been without the intervention of all of those armed forces and all of the people that contributed to this effort. On March 15, 1949, the operation was declared over. Demobilization began and snow did not melt in some areas of Operation Snowbound until July. There were still traces of this storm until July in the western Great Plains of the United States. There are still people that remember this winter. There are still people that remember it, uh, and they don't remember it fondly. You, you, I've read a bunch of stuff here and certainly looked up a bunch of stuff, and nobody sits back and says, when I was a kid, I remember that. No, nobody's saying that right now. What people are talking about is how scary it was, how isolated they were, and really they were basically kind of on the face of the moon. They had no way to contact people other than the telephone. They could look out their window and for miles see nothing but just a white, empty vastness, and it was totally on the soldiers, or I should say on the shoulders of the brave responders of the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, the National Guard, and even the civilians that, that threw in and chipped in on this project to save them, and it is... All hands on deck, Americana teamwork that saved the day in Operation Snowbound. Operation Snowbound is a story of disaster, but it's a story, too, of disaster averted. 4,000 persons, plus the hardy citizens of the affected area, subdued the almost overwhelming force of the elements by working ceaselessly under the most severe conditions. The Army, Air Force, Civil Air Patrols, National Guard, Naval Reserve, Red Cross, contractors, equipment operators, and American industry stopped a major catastrophe that would have been national in scope. Operation Snowbound, the Fifth Army's far-flung digging, plowing, bulldozing, and rescue mission in this blizzard-blitzed area, demonstrated once again the bigness of this nation, especially the bigness of its spirit and the bigness of its heart. Thank you. 
And hey, you can call me corny if you want. You can call me a homer if you want. But I really, in this day and age, I love this story because it once again goes to the root of the goodness of people's hearts. It goes to the root of how far people will go to work with each other for a common cause, especially when that common cause is benefiting their fellow citizens. I hope you enjoyed this story of Operation Snowbound, a moment in time in the United States in 1949 that many people don't remember, many people never knew existed. But now you know, and you know it's a great story, one of teamwork, one of survival, and certainly one of triumph for the American people. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. We'll be back soon with another story from our mechanical past and maybe our mechanical future. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net.